Hello everyone, my name is Lydia. This is Carla. And this is... No Librarians Allowed. Excellent. So this is an episode without guests. Sorry, it's just us two today. <laughs> but we have many thoughts. So today we just wanted to talk about gender, technology, neutrality, just thoughts reflecting on the week. Yeah, you know, those small topics, no big deal. Sure. <laughs> Light issues for this very beautiful Saturday. <laughs> So Carla, you have been reading some articles that are in the news. Um, there's a lot happening with women, oppression, <laughs> and media pickup. So I think you, you were touched by a couple of stories recently about um, men, I guess, implicated and convicted and covered in, in the news Specifically with Me Too movement and, yeah. and, and I guess, well, related issues? I mean, it's been an interesting week, Me Too-wise, because this week um, Bill Cosby was finally convicted um, for some of his crimes. And I think that that's just a pretty watershed moment that it would actually come to to that level of like punishment and that level right. of saying, like, yes, court system recognizes that you are a guilty person yeah. in all of these accusations, even though this was only a small fraction of, you know, the, the women that or accusing him, but right. I just feel like that's such a, a different stance than we've seen before. But at the same time, uh, apparently this was the week of the comeback or the planning mm -hmm. the staged comeback of Matt Lauer and Louis C.K. and Charlie Rose and all these men who were accused kind of like post-Weinstein of doing things that were arguably not as bad as what Weinstein was doing. But for some reason, all these articles are popping up this week that are like, getting ready to stage their six-month comeback, no new projects in the works, like putting out feelers to see what they're doing. And I just feel so ugh, about that. Because it, it, it kind of feels to me like these people were probably doing some time in their mansions, chilling out with their many rich friends, whatever. I will imagine what they've been doing. But this time away and time to reflect just sounds so, I don't know, it sounds glib and insincere to me. Like... So you've been doing this for 20 years or 30 years in the case of someone like Charlie Rose. You've been harassing women. You've been making inappropriate comments. You've been making inappropriate advances to people. And within six months, you've done some soul searching. And now that you've been caught, you admit that you're in the wrong. I don't know. Right. So your sense of apprehension and questioning of this, is it it's too short of a time to truly make a difference? Well, I don't even know. Like, I don't even know what I expect mm -hmm. of it. But it, it feels short, insincere. It feels, how does a person then demonstrate that they've like repented and that they've mm -hmm. changed? It seems like very quick to forgive, very quick to move on, very self-centered to have this idea that you could go back to what you were doing before without any consequence, that like you'd be welcomed back with open arms into your industry, like everyone is there for you. It's this narrative of like redemption and yes. you know, self-redemption and I'm going to, you know, come out of this being a bigger person. And sure, ultimately that would be great. If these men were like, I have seen the light and I am now a changed man and I am now a feminist and like, I understand what I've done is wrong and I'm going to lead people to not do this anymore. Fine, but I don't know. But we don't really have evidence of that e either. It's, no. it's, it's assumed that by virtue of just being out of the spotlight, they deserve a chance or everyone will accept yeah. them. And I mean, it also just feels a little bit like, so there was this outcry, mm -hmm. you know, six months ago or whatever, everyone was hashtagging and calling people out and whatever. Right. And, you know, the time's up. 
basically was was the motto and now six months later it's like oh time for redemption like they've done their penance they're sorry blah 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 and it almost feels like now if any woman were to say anything again about it it would be like well and you're being hysterical again like uh, there's no room for you now to keep on criticizing or, or to keep on questioning or to keep on kind of bringing this stuff up because like according to these men six months is enough time for it to be over with and no one can now challenge them right again you know the, this kind of uh, the fact that it's repeated to uh among many uh, individuals reminds me of kind of the trope in romance novels and probably a lot of literature of the changed man now usually in, in romance novels the woman changes the bad boy right yeah. so we tamed him that's tamed right. his wild spirit that's right and and i don't know if it's in sort of north american culture we like that idea of transformation it's not only applied to men but certainly a trope that's repeated enough to be viable to you know publish many books but we love to buy into that idea that men especially bad men can change but also with with this story I, I also kind of read only the beginning of it in terms of well they need to do something and of course their whole brand their mode of living the, the way they make their living is through media and um what other skills do they have so so they need to be part of the system again right to exist and it's true I, I you know I don't blame them of course they I guess everyone needs to do something but uh, yeah I, I agree I don't know how I feel about that and and so would would the same um assumptions and sort of past be given to a woman no, I I highly doubt it no I mean one of the I think it was Jessica Valenti she was doing a little op-ed piece I can't remember I read a bunch of different of articles and op-eds about it but they said like think about like Winona Ryder who was shoplifting and right. like couldn't get a job for however many years and was basically just vilified or like Lindsay Lohan who goes off the deep end and just becomes you know a maligned character ostracized and kicked out of the Hollywood establishment or whatever like there's it seems like the as always the the criticism and the punishment is much harsher for a woman than it would ever be for a man. I agree, yeah. And certainly, I don't know if I want to get into like you know, comparing crimes, but certainly, yeah, how the volume, the intensity, and the seriousness of women's misdemeanors versus these men's. I, I agree. I think women are punished much longer. However, does that mean, you know, can we ever forgive them? So, so should they ever get a fresh start? I don't know why. Well, and, and what does that mean to like, is, is forgiveness the only right. outcome here? Right. Is, like, is there forgiveness and consequence? What right. does that consequence look like? This is kind of a new position for us to be in as women. Like, okay, so now we are seeing these guys stand up and admit something. And, you know, we're seeing someone who has been doing this for whatever, 60 years, right. suddenly, you know, have real consequences in a court of law. What does this mean for us? Like, it, it feels like a, it feels a bit like an unprecedented moment. And... There, so there's uncertainty around what this actually means. I mean, one of the interesting things that another writer pointed out was like how it continues to be kind of this like self-involved narrative of redemption. So it's like the man is, is still at the center of this process. Yes. So he's saying like, I went away, I reflected, I went to whatever treatment program, like I huddled away in my Philadelphia mansion or whatever, and I've really thought about it. And now I'm a changed person. So again, like the man continues to be the center of this whole situation, just as he's been the center of his entire life, mm -hmm. you know, and 
every system that he's a part of, he is in the middle of it. So that that's kind of what I was thinking about when I started to read this book called Brotopia. Okay. Um, so to bring it back around to the tech rather than me just being the feminist ranting. Um, So this book came out, I think, February or March of this year. And I only read the first like half of the introduction before I had to return it to the library because I have this very intense true crime novel on the go that I had to finish. Big news there too this week about the Golden State Killer. Yes, absolutely. It's it's been a big week. 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 Um, So other fans of the My Favorite Murder podcast, I'm sure you will know what I'm talking about. (laughs) But um, I sat down for lunch this week and I was... Uh, starting to read the introduction to this Brotopia book and I just like I couldn't even believe what she started this book off with the the example that she gave of you know it's about women in the tech industry it's about women in Silicon Valley how they're maligned like what the culture is there you know bros are Mm. are rampant in Silicon Valley (laughs) so she starts off with this example you know, again, not being a person of a computer science background, like people probably know this, but I had no idea. I found this fascinating. So um, she was talking about this uh, example about how images first came to be digitized and put online. So in um, the early 70s, so it was in 73, at the University of Southern Carolina, oh, sorry, not Carolina, Southern California, um, There was a researcher named Dr. William Pratt, and he and his team of students were working on um, algorithms for photos. So how can you translate, this is me and my lay person speak, I don't actually know what they're doing, but I am taking it to mean that they're trying to get photos up online. So they had a grant from DARPA, they wanted to try and get the photos so that they could display um, over the internet. So they needed high quality images in order to have like the right amount of contrast and kind of, you know, a a very, very high pixel rate or whatever. And so the students were bringing in examples of this. And as he recalls, someone just happened to have brought in the November 72 Playboy issue into the computer science lab. So they just happened to have this Playboy lying around in the computer science lab. And lo and behold, the centerfold was of a Swedish model, um, Lena Söderberg, and they were like, oh, this is a really nice photo, like very high quality. Apparently Playboy was, you know, really renowned for the technical quality of their images and their centerfolds at the time. Great. And so they decided that they were going to use this image, this centerfold as their example that they were going to try and work with and try and translate over. So it turns out that eventually it got cropped down. So really what you were actually seeing was not the whole centerfold, but just kind of like her looking back over her bare shoulders. So you could assume what was happening in the rest of the picture, but, you know, you didn't necessarily know that this was a naked woman from a a sexy magazine. Okay. So apparently then this photo became one of the standard images that was used to compare. So first to like make a JPEG image, but then also to compare the different algorithms to see, you know, could someone improve it? It was kind of one of the standard images that people use. So for decades and decades, you could like flip open a computer science textbook and find this image in it. Or this would be something like every computer scientist knows this image if they're working in that field. So it's one of the like the most iconic images. Oh, wow. So she then moves to talk about this um, more recent computer scientist, a younger woman named uh, Deanna Needle. And 
she talks about how she was a computer science student, saw this image in her textbook, didn't really think much of it, but noticed that a lot of the guys in her class were kind of like giggling over it and whatever. Except then she went back to her dorm and saw that one of the other computer science students, a man, had taped the actual centerfold to his door. And she was like, oh, I see. I am looking at a naked woman. Like, this is not my field. I am suddenly aware of gender in this particular field, whereas Mm. I wasn't before. I knew that I was one of the only women, but it wasn't like an issue. So Emily Chang decides to call up Professor Pratt just to ask him about like, how did you guys pick this image? What was the story behind it? And asks him if he, if he had an opinion about the controversy that had surrounded it since, or if there were any, you know, did he have any thoughts about it? And He said, I'm just going to find, this is from page 20 of this book, which I have now downloaded as an ebook because I had to return the other one. So thank you, library, for doing that. He says, I haven't paid attention to the controversy at all. It didn't make any sense to me. We didn't even think about those things at all when we were doing this. It was just natural that we would use a good quality image and some of the best images were in Playboy. It was not sexist. But in the next paragraph, she goes on to say, besides, no one could have been offended, he told me. Because there were no women in the classroom at the time. Right. So, again, it's just this instance in tech of, like, not even willing to admit the issues or think about what the issues are with that statement. Like, there's no controversy because there's no women around. Well, that's a problem, too. Like, so it's just this kind of whole continued, like, marginalization and exclusion, it feels like. But also just a total, like lack of cognition right on that part and so i'm looking forward to getting the book out again and kind of reading the rest of her thoughts because i mean so far like five pages in i was like what this is incredible (laughs) this is so crazy but yeah it just again was one of those examples for me of like in the tech industry the history of it has such a strong gendered bias and I am curious about how, you know, that experience for others now. So that's why I'm hoping to, I mean, we have our own experiences that we can talk about, but I'm I'm also hoping to talk with more people about what they're thinking about and what they've gone through and how they work with it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, last year uh, we screened, um, there was a screening of the movie Code and um, they talked about computer science having not so much a enrollment issue but a retention issue Mm -hmm. now of course that's different now in the you know 20 somethings versus um, 1972 so that statement implies well if only women didn't make it such a big deal we same thing so it's it's really your problem for noticing it we were fine until you came along and started controversy it is now because you guys pointed it out but you know it wasn't sexist because there were no women there at the time, so we weren't even thinking about it. And also that role of standards, right? So the fact that it becomes part of the canon, mm-hmm. we often assume that standards themselves are neutral. Yeah. They are just choices. They're, you know, an array of mm-hmm. any choices. It's just a photo. Right. It's just a photo. But when men literally write the textbook or they're the only ones in the room present, mm-hmm. no one was there to even challenge or question it. Yeah, no one had a second thought. So it's, you know, if a tree falls in the forest, does anyone hear it? Same thing. Sexist? Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's right. You know, what? I'm really glad you bring up this example because I also had a similar experience Ooh, this tell week. Tell me about it. I was at a Accelerate Alberta conference, which is an entrepreneurship conference, but specifically focusing on technology in Alberta. 
And the first keynote, the morning keynote, was yeah, the head of applied AI, so artificial intelligence, which was the theme or the focus this year. So very particular, right? So artificial intelligence in technology in you know startups or technology companies. You know, this fellow came from uh, from California. So the head of applied AI at Google, um, and he also showed image or examples, I guess, of applications. And something struck me, and I wondered if I was the only one in the room who noticed, but a lot of the visuals or the examples to demonstrate, I guess, what AI, so artificial intelligence and machine learning is capable of, they have also been images of women. So one example I particularly remember, which is live, live, I guess, feed of a camera. So a camera on your mobile phone that can read uh, the image and know what is background and foreground. So where the human body is and what is background, which, which is important for, I don't know, superimposing backgrounds or having, I guess, image manipulation but in real time so again great technology but i was struck by why every example of essentially mobile phone interaction was pretty young women Mm -hmm. and he even mentioned the algorithm or the machine sees through hair right so it's true women do have long hair and you know here this clip that was shown was you know a young woman smiling and looking very pretty another i don't remember what the exact example was but it was again and again, and it made me feel like, you know, objectified, essentially that women were chosen as objects on which to study the algorithm, but not the runners, the creators. Um, he didn't mention any of the labor, the humans that went into it. And I, I don't expect that, but... Well, one could assume, though, based on statistics of who's working on these projects, that it is mostly men. That too, yeah. And so... Could you not have found other examples of a foreground and background, right? So is it that it's pleasing to look at a pretty young woman smiling at you? Is it, you know, something like there is a power dynamic there, right? And I I was made uncomfortable. Another speaker um, in an afternoon panel, again, a panel of four and three were men. One woman CEO of a technology company mentioned how while the attendees of the conference were not all women, you know, it was it was pretty good distribution, I would say, but those who raised their hands and those who were given the microphone and given that floor were men. And so her, I guess, advice or solution was, was the traditional kind of empowerment approach, right? So it's your responsibility. Me and you, Carla. That's right. Lean. And actually, Lean In was mentioned at the beginning. Like, mm-hmm. literally, that's, that's the approach to solve all this is if only we as individuals just applied ourselves more, right? So we were all encouraged to put up our hands and speak, but there's so much more at play, of course. Do men's hands get noticed more or, you know, to whom do the microphones go first? The way the questions are framed, there's already so much socializing by the time we're in that room that goes into it. So are are women unsure of themselves or don't want to speak do they just need a couple more seconds before they put their hand in yeah there's a lot more than just simply choosing right to apply more effort and all of it again was presented in this you know very neutral way and again is this conference the time to go into social issues probably not but what I think me and you are interested in is just awareness and maybe beginnings of conversations of the fact that it, there's more to it than that, right? There's more at play. There's always power going on in the room. Mm-hmm. So, 
that was a moment of reflection for me, certainly. Yeah. Well, and I think that's it too, is like this constant second guessing of yourself when you notice things like that, right? So if you're sitting in this room and being like, you know, there's a photo of a young woman, like I wonder why they chose that. That's the same image that I see in the media every day. That's not some beautiful young man. Like um, she talks about how this younger, this younger computer scientist in the book, I'm sorry, in the book, she talks about the younger computer scientist, Deanna, who started to show pictures of Fabio. And so she used Fabio, the beautiful, long-haired male model slash romance cover guy who got hit in the head with a goose or whatever, like as kind of a joke, but also as a way of kind of standing up to this constant use of beautiful women. So why not use a sexy man you know, with no shirt on instead. So I love this as a kind of dig at the establishment and the sort of critical art gesture. Resistance. I know we've yeah. talked about resistance again. And, you know, it will never be complete. And you, you can never take down the system in that one mm-hmm. event or one conference. But you're right. There are acts, I suppose. And even bringing that up and challenging or just having those conversations but I also wonder so say a woman does put up her hand and dares to sort of question or Mm -hmm. raise these thoughts we know and I it has happened to me where other participants in the room will dismiss it will essentially imply that you're naive or that your perspective is not valid or you know you're not grown up enough or you're just making something out of nothing that too which again is just that like that dominant perspective that's coming back like it's not a big deal because this is just the way things are well the way things are is not equal and the way things are are that way because of particular reasons and so pointing out the possible issues with an image like this with using a a young woman or using a playboy centerfold it's like i don't know i'm all fired up and i can't figure where i was gonna go with that (laughs) well i guess it's, it's it's a way of it's pointing out that thing. And so it should be an opportunity to reflect for that person. Like, what is this thing that I'm doing? And is there a problem? Not that it should be dismissed. We're also seeing a rhetoric now of essentially by virtue of many women coming forward and questioning the dominant way. And this has happened to me where literally the statement was, well, that's not how the world works, right? As if the world is, again, neutral. It just came into being and we're plopped into it. In many ways, we are. We do come into a world that was made before us, but it is always shaped by forces. Mm -hmm. And even it's not how it was in 1972, right? So to... I think people who say statements like that like to cherry pick, you know, what works for them. But of course, uh, if they were even two centuries ago, they would not have defended the way the world works. So the discourse that we're seeing now is any kind of questioning of inequality is seen as taken away from men's power, right? Because of that dominance for so long that any attempt to either balance it out or you know take some power back or just equate it among women minorities of any kind right any kind of marginalized group Uh, so very heteronormative uh images as well that we've seen right um so race gender sexuality all kinds of other i guess identities is seen as a threat and it's incredibly terrifying and that's why we are seeing violence in all forms so mm-hmm. violence not just physically but in language in policy in yeah mm-hmm. yeah um i want to ask you if you have any more thoughts about the algorithms sure yeah. yeah yeah so i was i was pleased again to have a chance um at this conference to 
think about bias and the fact that, you know, it was brought up. So um, this conference was about machine learning specifically. Um, AI, you know, to this day, I'm not sure I quite know the difference between artificial intelligence and machine learning. As I understand, machine learning is a, you know, a form or a way to do artificial intelligence. And it's funny balancing kind of technology with application, right? So most people there want to do stuff with it. And I think... I do too. I'm not necessarily <laughs> interested in it for for itself, right? And that's why we're having these conversations of it affects people's lives, right? So there were some discussions of, you know, we have some tools for highlighting bias, particularly in the way the machine learning algorithm, so essentially really complex instructions is run. But the way it was presented was, again, in this language of, well, first of all, you need enough data. It needs to be in good quality. It needs to be in the right format. And you need to know what you use this data for. As if, again, data just comes out into the world and it just sits in databases, but the process of collecting. So do we have more data on men than women or what gets counted, right? How it gets described. All of that is also not neutral, but fine, whatever. So I think the way this discussion was framed about bias is, yeah, just assumptions that gets built into the algorithm. They were never at any point in the in the conference were, were topics of you know social issues and things like race uh, gender class mm-hmm. uh, brought into it because you know these algorithms are so pure and you know they don't really touch people's lives and i tweeted that i wonder if we're gonna see <laughs> i tweeted there, no nothing you know nothing <laughs> bad happened uh, in fact this is the often the pitfall is many people don't know what the heck you're talking about um, so I just kind of asked if, I wonder if we're going to hear Sophia Noble's algorithms of oppression mentioned during this conference, because this would be a perfect um, opportunity to highlight some of the work that is happening. So in after this podcast, or we'll, we'll link to um, Sophia Noble's book. So she's a researcher out of uh, LA, I don't remember which university, so um, I should I should have my details right, straight. Right, right. Yes, um, but yeah, great voice injecting again that critical thought in, into technology. Um, and she studied uh, the way Google. So here we go. Google searches are not neutral, right? Mm-hmm. So when you search for Latin girls or black girls or other keywords, what gets selected mm-hmm. first? What gets highlighted? And so no, Sophia Noble's book was not mentioned. I I haven't read it yet. I I would like to read it, and I think. It's an important time right now. I also have a book, um, we'll link to it as well, called Automating Inequality, about how, you know, these algorithms or systems, a lot of forms, right? So, so much of government Mm. is web forms. But the logic of submitting those forms and, you know, how you get sorted and what benefits you get are also not neutral. They are written with assumptions. And so this, the book, Automating Inequality, is about how it punishes the poor. So you're already in a bad position and you have... The language is, well, you can raise yourself by the bootstraps mm-hmm. and get out of it. But the very system, the algorithm itself, the, the tool yeah. is biased against yeah. you to punish you. I, I have noticed that obviously these are all American books. And so even just reading uh, the summary of automating inequality made me think about, yeah, but these are American problems. Do we have that in Canada? I, I, I imagine much of it is similar. We have less to worry about because of our social system and our... Um, social benefits 
However, I think these larger issues don't go away, mm -hmm. right? We all use digital tools and we're all impacted by software mm -hmm. and we all use Google too. So it's, it's not as easy as that, but I would like to see more Canadian voices, I guess, in that research. So for sure. Well, and I think like I'm, I'm thinking about the dynamic right now. You, you talked about them, the researchers or the, the Google analysts presenting this as though it's the pure, like here's the pure natural algorithm. Yes. Like there's nothing wrong with it. And then that automatically posits that anyone who is asking questions about it is somehow like that is the status quo. This is the pure scientific, rational, objective reality. Anyone else who is questioning that from a social perspective or a social justice perspective is opposite, is opposed to that and is trying to pick away at this larger, more beautiful thing. So it automatically like it, it sets it up so that that's a separate conversation that has to happen. At this conference that you're talking about, it's about the tech. People want to do it. They right. want to get into it. Right. It focuses on the way that it's happening. It's on the specifics. It's yes. how to do it. And it's what really should be happening is all of those questions about quality and well, about equality should be built into that process in the first place so that that is the norm. So that the person who's coming up with the algorithms and, and all of that is automatically considering that before they release this objective pure data from whatever source they've called it from. So that it's not something that happens after the fact and is a challenge to what has already happened. It's the thing that's happening at the outset and is a regular part of how we build technology and how we make it. I do want to mention a couple more things, I hope it's okay, um, that I learned in this conference. So the fact that there are many kinds of AI, and I'm not necessarily going to get too technical, but uh, I did appreciate learning, I guess, this difference and the tension between what they call the black box uh, approach mm -hmm. and most... I guess machine learning processes are black boxes in the sense that you know we design it but we don't really know what the machine is doing we know there's many layers and some of it is trying to mirror the brain and yet you know they say be careful we don't know how the human brain works so how can we know what the simulated and it's not at the level of like recreating but there are you know artificial neurons so essentially there's a process right and, and it's quite complex it repeats it repeats and it gets better and it learns and then it comes up with an answer but the guts of it are dark and contrasting that with explainable AI so the black box versus explainable I guess are areas of application of machine mm. learning I think the my understanding as a computer scientist and you know in Edmonton we are apparently the leaders like Ooh. the University of Alberta is a leader in this so excellent in explainable AI the goal is to unearth or make visible expose the guts of that model and largely because of compliance so for mm. data privacy mm -hmm. uh, regulatory and even public perception so a lot of this conversation about power oppression i guess are part of public perception and that's good to apply that pressure so there's i guess i don't know pros and cons or they're, they're just different ways to do that but to, to have that literacy to, first of all, pose those questions and have a conversation about machine learning. Most of the public will not get there. Mm -hmm. And the fact, you know, we're pretty educated and we struggle with it. So imagine how few people there are who can ask the corporations. I'm not convinced that an individual asking Google will have the same exactly. impact. Right? Again, because that, that is the status quo. And so it, it needs to be happening at the outset. You know, this is such a tumultuous time i think this spring has been lots of ha uh, lots of events have happened 
And that idea of, well, sure, we're informed, we're empowered to pose those questions. And one discourse that I've seen that I don't agree with is, you know, yes, Facebook used our data. And, you know, it was on the fringes of this conference, this idea of data about users and how it's used Mm and for what purpose. But this, this discourse of, well, the individual is free to opt out and walk away, essentially. So if I don't like it, I don't have to use it. But that became clear from the Google presentation and certainly from Facebook. It's a monopoly. There are very few alternatives and mm-hmm. you have very little power and the, the trade-offs are very high if you walk away. So I, again, I think it's a very privileged position from some people and I've seen those tweets that say, well, well, you should know better and just don't use it. And if you're using it, then you're agreeing to it, right? Well, and I mean, yeah, you're right to say that that is kind of a privileged position. If that's your one way of communication, you know, you don't have your own device Let's say you don't have a computer, you're going to the public library to use Facebook on on the computers there to connect with the rest of your family who's in another country or you don't have a cell phone so you can't connect with them. Like it's very representative of someone who has that choice because they have alternatives. And you're right, there are, what are some of the alternatives for doing that? But it became clear that both Google and Facebook and, you know, there's a handful of them. We can count them on our fingers how many of these platforms are out there because that's the natural process to dominate that market. It's a reminder for us working with people every day that Facebook and Google have become the de facto identity authentication essentially mm-hmm. tools right like verifying that you are who you are because they are so dominant and prevalent so you don't have a lot of choice if the other tools are relying on it and also what yeah what if it's your way to connect to the internet in some countries like it's literally through facebook no other method of authentication for whatever reason you know that proxying in of identity is is chosen maybe because the government is working with facebook i don't know hope we don't get into trouble <laughs> this podcast for all these assumptions but it, it's such a complex system the individual has a lot less power than we talk about mm-hmm. right that we make it out to be so that's kind of some thoughts on my mm-hmm. mind on one hand it's very exciting to think about these tools and and i am pleased that we're beginning those conversations but we need to be critical and i think you know this is why we we care about it so much and we are passionate about digital literacy is that We need to be literate enough to know what's at stake, what questions to ask, what questions are meaningful. Doesn't mean we necessarily always have impact or action on the big players, but to be able to navigate in that world is a form of literacy. And I'm just like, forget that, we'll become the big players and then (laughs) because we're perfect. (laughs) Well, we've had very stinky weeks, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. We should maybe put our feet up and enjoy the rest of our Saturday. <laughs> it has been a very, very busy time. And, and the fact that we're having these, you know, the media coverage um, is pretty good. I'm also impressed with um, the amount of, I guess, data journalism that's happening and even more, you know, infographics, data visualization, whatever you want to call it, is being um, included in, in newspaper articles. Also the debate about, so I'll just mention, you know, this, this talk of data literacy got me thinking. So recently there's an article in the Edmonton Journal about uh, speed limit debates and questioning what source of data came from 
from, or I guess that the city council is relying on to make decisions. To me, I interpret that as a story about data literacy and the fact that, you know, before, even a few, you know, a few years ago, it was very much a, well, leave it to the experts. They know we just, um, we just decide. Mm-hmm. Now, I think the expectation is that regular people, or at least writers and professionals, have the ability to critically reassess that data because we are surrounded by it. But it, it's not easy, and, and there's a lot of bad data out there, and it's never complete. But I, I would, I guess, a story like that makes me think that our overall data literacy is rising, and it's a challenge. Most people just want to live their life and not take data classes. And yet, it's everywhere, right? Facebook is data, so you can't just isolate. Yeah. How are people going to learn about this in a way that is not a burden to their already busy lives? Yeah. That's something that I think about. And it also raises a question of, like, how much does the average person need to know in order to continue to live their lives and use these products? Like, is it right to put that responsibility on them? Is it, you know, again, putting this position of into a critical position yeah. so you're already just commenting on what already exists right. rather than somehow being the creators of that thing or right that's right so our auctions for contributing to or creating algorithms they're a lot more closed than options for creating say print or text literacy right so most people can write a blog post or contribute to a site but very few of us can contribute to a machine learning algorithm so at this conference there was um, a couple of sources that were I guess included as as options Um, so I will be digging into them a little bit but you know I'm a pretty literate person I have a bit of education and and I'm intimidated by these (laughs) tools so it it shows how small I guess the pool of individuals were able to navigate that world are and um, it was certainly mentioned that something like you know under under 3,000 data scientists and sure and so who are those data scientists and how representative are they and what are they thinking about when they're making these algorithms personally I don't think that everyone needs to become computer scientist or be data literate even like yes some critical thinking about what you're seeing but I also want to hold those people to high standards those 3,000 people and say yeah you have a responsibility to also be thinking about this and to be making sure that your product is ethically sound and is balanced and representative and considers bias and is not skewing towards one gender or another like I feel like I have the right to expect that of people in that field (laughs) which is maybe naive of me but I'm going to stick to my ideals. It affects people's lives Mm. right it's not an esoteric thing like it's literally being built to apply to processes so it's a good question why should an average person, whoever that is, have to worry so much. And why are those, you know, we're all getting those, we've changed our privacy Mm -hmm. policy statement in our inbox, but it is written by lawyers, not in plain language. And in some ways, the companies are counting on that, right? On Mm -hmm. obfuscation and obscurity and yeah, of it being not transparent. Why should the individual spend so much of your time reading these statements and rather than living life yeah. and, and expecting an ethical <laughs> tool social justice hey, give it to us <laughs> give us what we want <laughs> cool well i look forward to hearing more about your explorations of the other things you've been learning about at the conference sure yeah so um, i will dig into google's co-laboratory so it's more of i guess a platform for testing data science and like i i don't even what am i, what am I gonna do with it i don't know it's interesting but <laughs> i guess a more interesting tool has been kaggle which is almost like a social network or a 
platform for large data sets and people analyzing them and, and interpreting them. And there is a fair amount of, I guess, literacy that can be gained just by reading, like how people have approached a particular data set. I don't have an example right now, but like, you know, mosquito bites around the world. Or one was interesting, um, no shows to doctors. So again, yeah. who collects this data? Where does it come from? But okay, fine. The data set will never be perfect, but it's a starting point. And so the question was, are men or women more likely to be no-shows at doctor's offices? And, you know, are they punished more? Or what could be the reasons? And so often the data, you know, if it's, if it's numeric, if it's, you know, quantitative, it doesn't tell a complete picture, right? So what are the other factors? And so it was interesting to read how different data scientists, I guess, have approached it and analyzed it and discussed it. So not everyone has time to go through that, but... Those are also opportunities for injection of social science. So is it that women have other responsibilities? You know, it's not just laziness, right? Do they have lower paying jobs with fewer benefits and the ability to leave those jobs in order to go to a doctor's appointment? And someone also said, is it that, you know, by women, or by virtue of having babies, uh, you know, going to an OBGYN just need more appointments to begin with? So just the number of appointments means they'll miss some statistically. Like all of those are interesting questions. And so all of that is on Kaggle. How much time I want to spend on it is another question, but they are out there. And I guess people... People, you know, just like they do on Reddit or Stack Overflow, people do go and look at other people's interpretations and make it better. So there are communities, I guess. I guess that helps, too, is to think about it, not just as one person taking on a giant corporation or a giant faceless entity, but it can be a group of people who are getting together to do it. Yeah, it's definitely community driven and there is room for, um, I guess, critique and that hive mind as we have with many communities online. So I'm sure it's fraught with its own issues, but it is out there. So I was pleased to learn about it. As always, it's a pleasure, Lydia. <laughs> Thanks, Carla. Yeah, it's been a very passionate discussion. We have many thoughts. So um, look for more episodes. Uh, we will have some guests soon. And um, yeah, we'll see you in the next one. See you later.